Tea Time is a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective, hosted by Tim Ullman and Jack Caliber. The ULC envisions a future in which all congregations fully equip the priesthood of all believers through world-class leadership development at the local level. Lead Time taps into biblical wisdom for practical solutions to today's burning issues. Each podcast confronts real-time struggles facing the local church in a post-Christian culture. Step into the action with the ULC at uniteleadership.org. This is Lead Time. Welcome to Lead Time. Tim Allman here with Jack Kalberg. Today we have the unique honor and privilege to have as a partner in the gospel, one who's been contributing to the Unite Leadership Collective, our work, a couple blogs, uh, one recently that came out called The Unforgiving Slave. We have uh, Nick Graff with us today. If you missed uh, his podcast, you can go over to the American Reformation podcast that came out a few months ago now. But Nick and I have developed a relationship from afar. Uh, he is also a he uh, retired from the Marines and then served GS-14. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's like a lieutenant colonel, just a high-level military leader who now is on a new journey digging into deep theology. Uh, Tell us, though, what your role, you just told Jack as you guys were getting to know one another, you're an Arabic linguist when you were in in the military. And I think, so for a a lot of folks, you're really well well read, bro, and, and as you're going to hear, well spoken as as well. How did your time though? Before we get into the blog, how did your time like being an Arabic linguist student? How was that shaping kind of your theological mind today, if at all, Nick? Thanks for joining us, bro. Yeah, I appreciate it, Tim, and it's great to obviously be on here with Jack. Um, so we, uh, uh, yeah, so I had a great foundation. So I had a wonderful uh, pastor and church workers growing up. Um, you know, I didn't get. Um, any kind of catechesis in the home, but I certainly got it at school and I certainly got it at church. And so um, when I got into a situation where I was actually, you know, joined the Marine Corps, I was learning the Arabic language. I was exposed to um, Islam and I really, I, I, through my teachers, and it's, it's also pretty important in learning the Arabic language to really understand some of the basic tenets of Islam. And then when you apply that uh, to an intelligence context, it's important to understand people's motivations and those sorts of things. So um, I really looked at it as an opportunity to uh, sort of engage in um uh, a, a sort of a, a deep theological study to the extent that I possibly could of Islam. Um, and the reason that I felt comfortable doing that is because I was so well-grounded and confessional Lutheranism, thanks to the people who uh, invested in me uh, when I was a child. So um, yeah, it, uh, and then, uh, you know, learning Arabic, getting out into the, into the force as soon as uh, probably two or three years after I graduated, uh, 9-11 happened. And so I was, uh, you know, immediately thrust into this never ending global war on terror. Um, and it was really, uh, you know, it gave me an opportunity to really see people for who they are, see evil in the world, but also see the good in the world, see that they're, you know, you can't paint everyone with a broad brush stroke. Um, you know, it gives, it, it alters my perspective of how I view, uh, what's happening in Israel right now. Um, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, not all Palestinians are represented by Hamas and there's a good deal of one, there's a good deal of Christian Palestinians and, uh, and two, uh, you know, just because we are Christians doesn't automatically necessitate support for the political state of Israel. So there's, um, you know, a lot of things that I wouldn't say it shaped my theology at all, but it, but certainly my theology has shaped the way that I viewed the world. And I think that's probably the way that we want to do this, uh, you know, as a rule, hopefully. When you did your study of Islam, was that in a school context or just kind of a, a self-study? How did, how did that go? Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, you end up, uh, I think for the basic course, we uh, were basically studying Arabic uh, mm-hmm. eight hours a day, five days a week for 63 weeks. And so you can imagine yeah, you've got Christmas nice. breaks in there and mm-hmm. all those sorts of things. So it's it's an immersive experience. So you, you uh, generate a relationship with your teachers. And so, uh-huh. um, you know, if you've only got five or six teachers who are teaching, you know, rotating in and out, you quickly develop a relationship with these people. And um so, you know, getting to see the wide uh, swath that being an Arab represents Arab, Arab is a Arabic is a language. Being an Arab mm-hmm. means you speak Arabic. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're a Muslim. It doesn't necessarily mean yeah. anything, really. Uh, so getting a chance to engage in um, 
you know, I wouldn't call it ecumenicism by any, by any right. uh, state, but having an exchange of ideas is pretty important. And yeah. so, um, yeah. Are, are there any like commonly held misconceptions that people have as you were kind of getting in there and maybe learning some aha moments? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think for me, um, I have a tendency to really put everything in two buckets. I have a tendency to say like, you know, either it's uh, this religion is based on works righteousness or it's based on grace. And so um, really peeling back, um, you know, people talk about God's mercy all the time. Catholics talk about grace frequently, but when you really peel back the onion, what you find at, at the very center of it is works righteousness. And that was the same uh, for Islam. And that was uh, sort of seeing through uh, the top dressing of God's mercy uh, was mm-hmm. one thing. And then, you know, I'm a Midwestern kid. We didn't, uh, I went to a Lutheran school. I went to a Lutheran high school. We were, uh, reflective of our general synods racial composition. So I had absolutely no exposure to, um, you know, uh, people of other faiths, people of other ethnicities at all. So, um, yeah. I think we had one African-American kid in our school of 700. So, um, yeah, so, so getting, getting out in the world and being able to see, um, people getting, you know, working on a team and getting to see, um, uh, that, you know, uh, I think diversity in our Senate is, uh, is kind of a, a bad word, but, uh, I would say that anytime, uh, if you don't value diversity, I would say you've never done anything sufficiently complicated. So, uh, when you really... <laughs> really get to it. Uh, uh, having all those different perspectives is pretty important. Uh, I don't know, Tim, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I took over uh, a platoon one time and um, we we're getting ready to do a pretty dangerous operation into the middle of the Atlantic for a training operation one night. Mm-hmm. And we had a bunch of new guys. And so the idea was we were going to helo cast, which means just jumping out of a helicopter pretty low off the deck into the middle of the Atlantic in the middle of the night, pretty dangerous. And uh, we used to do this thing called a before action review. So we would brief our operations plan and everybody else would red team it. And so I looked down a sea of faces that looked just like me and everybody, this guy briefed his ops plan and everybody was in violent agreement. And it was that point where I realized I needed some better diversity of thought because, you know, this is a dangerous thing. And if, if everybody's just like, yeah, that makes sense because they're all coming at it from the same perspective, then we're going to, it's a dangerous situation. So, yeah. Oh, that's, that's so good. And really colors the, the, I think value you're bringing to the wider conversation now in the, in the LCMS. So let's dig into your blog. And for those that haven't read it, it's called the unforgiving slave. Uh, it came out, gosh, back in October. Now this is probably being released uh, around 2024, close to that at least. So uh, what inspired you to write that, that really well-written uh, blog, the unforgiving slave on one of your favorite parables of Jesus? Yeah, it's one of my favorites because I think that we needed to be reminded and just to catch everybody up in case they haven't read it and in case they haven't read the the parable in a while. So here we have, you know, Jesus, the perfect lawgiver. Right. And so there's not a lot of gospel in this. And it's it. And, and I'm a you know, I, I'm gospel first and foremost. But this is one of my favorites, because what we have is a servant or a slave going into a king who's settling his debts and um he begs and pleads for mercy and the king gives him mercy, forgives his debts. As soon as he leaves the king's court, he walks out, finds someone who owes him money and basically chokes him and demands his payment. Right. And the king brings him back in and sells him and his wife into, you know, whatever kind of bondage. And he's immediately back into debt. And so the idea here, uh, we have the overriding theme of Matthew's gospel aside from Um, secondary to the uh, ministry of Jesus Christ, we have the abhorrence of hypocrisy. And so, you know, Matthew coming from his perspective is constantly being uh, attacked by Pharisees who believe that they are holier and more righteous than Matthew is as a tax collector. And so uh, Matthew's gospel just cannot stand in any way, shape or form, any kind of hypocrisy. And so he he calls it out frequently. So uh, this is really about our hypocrisy as Lutherans who live, literally live in God's grace. We are Mm -hmm. given a free gift. We have earned it, not, not through our faith, not through any works we've done in any way, shape or form. And yet we hold on to the transgressions that other people have committed against us. And um, it was kind of shocking to me. Um, 
on a Tuesday night Bible study. And after that Sunday service, my pastor preached a great sermon. He's not real comfortable with it either because, you know, if this is your gospel reading and there's no gospel in it, um, it, it, it makes for a tough Sunday. And the lectionaries do that to people sometimes. Um, okay. This Sunday was another great example. If you're in lectionary series A, uh, we had the the bride and the bridegroom and the brides have to, you know, be ready for the bridegroom coming back. And if they're not, then it's problematic. So, so there, this really unsettles a Christian's peace. And so one of the things that has always concerned me is that when we say sola scriptura um, and we mean it, we mean that the scripture is primary, but we don't mean that the scripture is it. And so we have to always do any kind of exegesis with the full analogy of faith um, at, at our disposal. And so when we read the uh, unforgiving slave, unforgiving servant, we have to remember that, um, you know, it, we, we get this warning, this dire warning from Christ. But um, when we read this in the full analogy of the faith, we, we come up with a different conclusion than if you just read read the parable um, out of context. Um, and so on a Tuesday night Bible study, there were, uh, you know, we were getting ready to start and there was great concern over this parable. You know, I, I haven't forgiven my sister from 50 years ago who, you know, did this and I haven't talked to my you know, whatever, and however many years. And so, you know, people started to, it, it really unsettled the peace that they should have as Christians. And so what I wanted to do um, was one, uh, reinforce the fact that if you feel convicted by this parable, you probably should, and you should make a change. And then two, um, that you're uh, always remember that your uh, that your spiritual righteousness, your justification is no act that you can do. Like there's literally nothing that you can do uh, uh, to uh, to uh, be righteous before God. And so uh, I wanted to write this really to make people feel a little bit better because, you know, um, I, you know, I, th- I think a lot of times we worry about like impenitence. And that that seems to be uh, one of the things that a lot of people in our church are worried about today, especially people who. Uh, tend to be a little more legalistic and a little more pietistic. They worry about impenitence. But um, I think that our fallen state, our human reason, our logic uh, condemns us all the time. I think the law is written in our hearts. I think we know it. Uh, I think what we have a hard time believing is the gospel. And um, Mm -hmm. so what I wanted to do was just uh, put people's minds at ease, really. And, And I've also heard pastors who have an issue with this, you know, this, it's not their favorite parable. They kind of dread it when it comes up in the lectionaries. Well, yeah, <laughs> having experienced that, apart from connection to the wider story of faith, like if you're just reading this story, apart from understanding a creator who's going to send back his son to recreate all things in the last day and were his until that day comes by grace through faith in the waters of baptism, unless you know that wider narrative, you will read all law into a story story like that. So I love the way you yeah. kind of, I know you're not, you're on a, you're not a pastor yet, but on a, on a journey toward in the future, you very pastorally uh, shepherded that group of people with the laws on your heart. It's meant to, it's meant to yes, kill and crush. And yet, also, if the Lord brings something up for you to love your neighbor, to reconcile with your neighbor, go and act, go and act on it. Abs- absolutely. Anything more to add, though, uh, to that, Jack? Yeah, I, I'm just thinking deeply about the parable itself and actually like what the heck's going on there, because this servant is forgiven and they go out and they unforgive. Right. And so what you have is kind of a breakdown in identity. Yeah. They're failing to see the identity in this other person, which is their own identity and actually like recognizing that in another. And so that's, that's at the heart of the hypocrisy. Right. And I think that's where, that's where we get to connect it back to the gospel again is like, okay, now what is your identity? Right. Yeah. Forgiven, forgiven, undeserving servant. Right. Yeah. And and you know, Jack, you know, one of the things that I didn't write this in the blog post, but one of the things that I've always, that parable has always reminded me of is I always think like, what if I was that unforgiving servant? Why would I walk out of there and demand payment from someone else? And the mm-hmm. reality is because I don't believe I'm forgiven. Yeah. Right. Like I, I walked out Did of the Did he really chamber. forgive or do I? Yeah. Do I still Do I need to money? get this money to pay it right. later? Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's at the heart of this is that right. um, we have a lot of, of people who don't really truly 
believe that they are forgiven. And, uh, yeah. and that's an absolute key to repentance is contrition and of faith that, that, that they have been forgiven for their transgressions. Let's lean and it into leaves no room. It leaves no, no room, room for us to pretend that nah. we can't see ourselves in that story. Right. It cuts right. to the bone. Right. Yes, absolutely. Repentance. I've been thinking a lot about repentance and the the way the the Hebrew scriptures and then how the the Greek word that's used for repentance. This was a new new learning for for me. Um, so in the Hebrew, it's an about face. You are going one direction. You recognize this is this is leading me toward darkness and despair. The the law is shining before me. The Holy Spirit turns me around, and I see the loving embrace of Jesus who claims me as his own. So it's this kind of turning. But in the Greek, uh, it's metanoia, which meta above, noia to know. So it's to set your mind on things above. This is Colossians 1, right? Where where mm-hmm. Christ is. It's a kind of an elevation. And what elevates us, Nick, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Where there's forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation, right? So it's that, oh my goodness, I know deeply what I deserve. And yet I've been forgiven absolutely everything. And I've been invited to the banquet with, with the King. I'm thinking of the, the Luke 15, right. And the, the prodigal son, like I have this older son tendency to me. Like, I don't know if I want to go into the party. Where's my party, right? No, no, the party is there. The banquet's being thrown, like come and take your, your rightful place, not because of what you've done, but because of the declaration of the son for, for you. So yeah, this legalistic tendency is so ingrained in us. And this is the podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective. A lot of folks in the LCMS are listening, but you could go off on either direction, right? In a, in a super, super, oh, open, open. Or you could be, no, 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 it looks like this. There is there is a room for all to be crushed in this conversation and yeah. every tongue to be silenced that the voice of Jesus would would be preeminent in in and through us today. So from your perspective, what are some of your, your strengths as you're looking at, uh, we're all within the family, so we need to be sensitive for those who are within the family, but some of the strengths for us culturally in the LCMS, theologically in the LCMS, I think there's a lot to be said that's beautiful, and some of our challenges right now, especially considering the times, Nick, in 2023. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I plain and simple, um, our theology, our confessions, um, uh, you know, uh, especially, you know, I'm, I'm working, you know, I think I mentioned this and I'm working on a uh, systematic theology for, for children who are going through um, confirmation. Um, and so right now when I'm sent that I'm working on the hypostatic union and the Guinness myostaticum for kids, you know what I'm saying? So how do you, how do you synthesize, um, you know, uh, Chemnitz and Peeper and make them accessible to children? And that, and that's, that's what I'm working on right now. But those theologians are phenomenal and people need to read them and, and uh, plain and simple and or at a minimum, actually open the book of Concord and read what it is that we believe, teach and confess. And yes. um, those are that is our strength, period, end of story. And it's the common thing that every every pastor swears to 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 believe teach and confess what's in the book of concord that's a faithful exposition of of holy scripture and so i think that's our that's what unites us i think that that is the common thread um and uh uh and in 2023 um you know i i think that there is uh I, I think that there's a push and pull in both directions. I think we have some, I, you know, I, I'll just say some, some relatively extreme views on either side. One is to say, you know, take it's, you know, uh, uh, basically sin is, uh, you know, uh, uh, sin is not something that we really need to worry about because we live through grace and that, uh, we, we should, we should not, you know, have any sort of piety, um, at all as Lutherans, uh, that's nobody says that, but that's what I think they mean. Um, and then the other, uh, extreme would be this, uh, pietism that is taken hold, um, in certain geographical areas within our Senate. I think that that's one of the, the things that we're going to have to overcome. Um, I think we're still dealing with the outfall of, of the fallout of Seminex in some sense, because, uh, when you, um, 
uh, jettisoned by whatever means a large portion of the Senate that, um, you know, m- you know, obviously we don't want to have the higher critical method being taught in our, our seminaries, but those people had with them uh, a different worldview as well. And when you completely jettison that worldview, what's left is um, people who are on one particular side of a, a teeter totter ideologically. And so um, that, tends to just get uh, self-reinforcing over time. And so what we have now is what's left post-Seminex is um, a, 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 a very pietistic influence. And it's in it. And we've we fought this battle before. Um, but what I think what I think the Senate needs to be able to do intra-Senate um, is be able to push back against those th- those individuals in the same way that they push back against higher criticism. And just because you happen to side with them on matters of, say, abortion, human, human sexuality and, um, uh, you know, say, worship forms, forms of worship doesn't necessarily mean that you've bought the entire uh, the entirety of their um, pietistic sort of agenda or ideology. So. Yeah, I mean, we could dig into that if we want, uh, but you know, it's, I'm, 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 I'm going to have to start naming names at some point. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's not name names, but let's talk. Let's talk issues. Yeah. As you look at the broader landscape of the LCMS, let's get more specific where you could see a overly pietistic leaning around sure. various issues, and I think it's in, in response to the the increasing the secularism yeah. that's taking root in the United States. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I would just say to that, just because, um, you know, if you take a view that whatever the world does, I'm going to oppose it. What you end up doing is letting the world influence you in a, in a very profound and meaningful way. And, and, that, and that's yeah. what I think that some of the pietistic uh, influences in our Senate have done. I think they've, uh, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't question their uh, sincerity, uh, but I do question their theology and their wisdom. Um, and I will say this, um, you know, one of our greatest strengths as a synod, as like Synod Inc., is our education uh, system. And that's literally pre-K through, um, you know, the Concordia University system all the way through our uh, uh, seminaries. And uh, those are under attack right now. And what we're left with is um, a, a pretty concerted na- uh, effort, a narrative to really undermine trust and confidence in the Concordia University system. There is, it is not a coincidence that uh, Luther Classical College is opening in the fall of 2025 as uh, the Concordia University system has uh, come under attack. And I will tell you that we may not uh, always agree you know, from the outside looking in with some of the decisions that, uh, people, you know, the, the church workers and ordained pastors within the Concordia University system have made. But I think we have to trust that they have made um, to the extent possible the best decision available in the context. And um, so so what what we now have is um, sort of dueling. Uh, uh, university tracks, one which um, will potentially end up in fewer church workers or church workers who have been um, radicalized in some sense in a monastic gulag is what I would call it, and then unleashed on uh, unleashed on our seminaries. Don't I think back. that's the point. Yeah, yeah, Jack, I, Jack, Tim. I think I think when we retire, I think I think their plan is that when we're sitting on a call committee someday, the only people we have to choose from that are available for a call are some of these uh, pastors that they flooded our seminaries with. And, um, and I'll give you, I'll give you one example. Uh, and I think, I think that there's a big difference between our two seminaries, unfortunately. Um, but I'll give you one example. I was watching um, uh, the installation day in uh, at uh, uh, Fort Wayne and the opening prayer was three lines long. It mentioned sanctification twice, justification zero times. And so uh, that's, I think that's problematic. I mean, this is the 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 opening prayer for 
the you know the beginning of the school year, the installation of new people within the within the seminary, uh, new professors, et cetera, et cetera. And if we think that we've skipped past justification, that we're just on the sanctification road, there's the, it really starts to have we become this Calvinist. Yeah, we do. Well, and right. it has a very Catholic infused grace kind of feel to mm-hmm. it as well. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure uh, we should be praying for justification every day in every way because we need it yeah. moment to moment. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I just yeah, go ahead, Tim. No, I'm, I'm reading a book. I've got a book. Uh, Healthy Congregations. It's one to dust off the listener if you haven't haven't uh, taken a look at it. It was written back in. By Pete Steinke back in 2006. No, no, no. Wow. 1996 from the Alban Institute. And it's it's family systems theory and just how do we maintain differentiation and connection and how do we maintain peace so that we can keep our heads heads about us. Uh, but what it, it talks about uses the um, analogy of the immune system in how the body takes care of itself. Our immune system is very, very helpful. And um, it it goes in and recognizes what is of us, what is of a healthy body, what's leading us to thrive, and what is an external force that's come in, you know, a, a germ, a pathogen of some sort, right? And so the immune system kind of separates what is what is from what should not be a part of that body. And the same thing happens within congregations and, and synod. Now uh, the fascinating part, there's also something called an autoimmune response, right? Sometimes from within we can end up misappropriating what is us. This should, this should be a part of us. Why? Because it's leading us to be balanced. It's leading us to be healthy. So there needs to be within a congregational setting, the ability to challenge uh, with love and care and respect. If we see something at the local level or the synod level, it would be unkind of us to not to not speak. But right now, I think in the LCMS, we have this we've we've divided ourselves into various camps and we're only speaking to those who agree, agree with us. We need to let the immune system work to bring us to the center, which is Christ, which is yeah. the foundational principle of the scriptures, which is our justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Anything that moves out on a legalistic or pietistic or or heretical, we're compromising scripture in some way, shape. We need to have an immune function that draws us back uh, to to the middle, um, or else we're going to end up eating eating our, ourselves, uh, destroying yeah. destroying ourselves. I think that's a helpful analogy uh, for what we're walking through today. Any response to that, Nick? Yeah, I mean, it's really it's a really difficult thing to do. I mean, I th- I think some of these uh, some of being able to have this sort of ecclesiastical supervision. Uh, is uh, something that we don't have, and it's a result of our polity. And our polity was formed really, uh, you know, Walther did his best, but I mean, he had a, some trying situations, and we're still yeah. living out. You know, they have a saying that says, you know, uh, bad case makes bad law. And so, Walther trying his best to put this thing together uh, in the wake of the Bishop Stefan issue really resulted in the polity we have today. And, you know, it, there is almost no way. Um, no mechanism uh, other than hoping that a district president will step in to fix some of these issues. And, and so uh, we, you know, other than a congregation fixing it, can, there can really you get is no ecclesiastical. That, Nick, like when you talk about stepping in and do, like what, 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 like what type of an issue would you say? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. I, I think it was probably at the Casper, Wyoming Airport Marriott uh, Conference Center, but it was supposed to be Luther Classical College. But they had a guest speaker who was a former uh, professor at one of our seminaries who got up and said the reason that the uh, LCMS is having issues is because we allowed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to pass. What? Yeah. And so former professor of exegesis. And so uh, that's ridiculous. And so uh, so basically the idea was <laughs> the idea was the idea was that the demographics in our neighborhoods changed and they did. And that those demographics didn't support the Lutheran church in their neighborhood. Well, the Lutheran church in their neighborhood, the reality is didn't reach out to them. It didn't didn't reach out to the changing demographics of their neighborhood and instead decided to be insular and German. 
And that's really the problem. But you can't. But I mean, this wasn't uh, this wasn't like a, a, you know, uh, this was a prepared lecture that he was giving. And so. um, So. So who am I going to call his district president? He doesn't care. So (laughs) he's let this thing happen. So then what do I do? Go to Senate Inc. They're not, you know, so uh, and it's problematic. And let me tell you why it's problematic. I I have a large group of unchurched Guatemalan immigrants in my Mm. area in Tuscaloosa. If if one of the people that I'm reaching out to and mind you, because of the political climate in America, they're told that we all want to deport them. Like, don't trust white people. And that's completely reasonable because all they hear on the news is this idea of deportation. If I go to those guys and they stumble across this video, I, I can't disown this guy. He, he is a pastor in good standing in our Senate, and he is a former professor at our seminary. So yeah. there's not a lot I can do about that. So this, this is actually becoming uh, an issue with 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 gospel proclamation, with outreach, with with missional activities domestically, which is the only way that our church is going to survive. Well, this goes so, back, Nick. Go ahead, Jack, and I got a I got a yeah, higher yeah. level uh, so statement. Go there's ahead. A, there's a lot to think about here. So we've seen, we know, you study the history of the LCMS. You know, from the times of Walther, uh, our body has always been very faithful to the Book of Concord and the, and the Lutheran Confessions. Yet. It seems in our history that we've gone through times where we have been much more healthy and maybe much more missional, much more entrepreneurial, much more innovative in the ways that we've thought about um, ministry. I'll give an example of uh, um, Lutheran Hour as probably like one of the most I mean, nobody was doing radio ministry when they went off and they blew it up. This is an example of, you know, using the Christian freedom that they have to be very missional to spread the gospel. And it just seems like um, we we don't have these same freedoms now. It seems like the system wants to clamp down on some of these sort of, you know, experiments that may, we may want to run that may yeah. have this incredible missional evangelical result. It's like, we, we just have to control it. We have to stop it. And then we see this, in, and this is another thing I've been reflecting on. We did a, an episode recently about the decline in church sizes of, of, of the LCMS. Yep. Um, and then, you know, this is, you could say this is very much in the wake of um, a slingshot response to the church growth movement that came in. There's many um, LCMS churches that got on board with some of the things of the church growth movement. I get the fact that there may be some uh, theological issues. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're looking at a non-denominational church, you're not going to agree with some of the things that they're doing that at the same time, you can have an open hand and say, are there things that we can learn from this that are very, very practical as we think about being missional as a church? And it seems like that permission is not given. So, yes. you know, you come out with like a slingshot response opposing church growth. And guess what? You, you've proven that you don't want yeah. the church to grow. Yeah, that's right. By your actions. That's right. And, Everything. And, and it's almost like a, right, a self-righteous thing by doing that. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Everything rises and falls on Jesus. And then, and then leadership. And you both knowing this in in the military, there's a chain of command for a reason, right? We need we need appropriate communication to come down. There's an enemy, and we need to know the objective, and we need to have that objective pushed down to those that are at the grassroots. You know, I think I think we can learn a lot from from military and chain of command because just going back to your story, Nick, uh, where was someone in a leadership position? And I come under authority. I'm always under authority, like yeah. right. I uh, of our president and our congregation, of our board, of the the bishop, the president, district presidents here. We don't call them bishops necessarily, but under Mike Gibson in the Pacific Southwest District, like if I say something, it would be unkind for him and others to say, "Whoa, Tim, hold, hold on, hold on." Like we have, we have. It's an abdication of leadership and it's a failure of nerve to go back to Edwin Friedman. It's a failure of nerve. It's a lack of courage for someone in an appropriate uh, role 
who is who is above. I've had people challenge challenge me. There is order in human in human relationships before God. Mm-hmm. No, no order. All one. But there is order and structure. And so we, it's a failure of nerve of a number of different leaderships at different levels uh, to say, whoa, well, let's hold the phone. Let's have a wider conversation about that. This is what I heard. Was that your intent? And let's let's break it down. Why? Because you're in the family. You're a brother in, in the family. And I, I don't want anybody to be, uh, you know, eighth commandment to it. I hear that thrown out all the time, right? You're breaking yeah. an eighth commandment. Well, what's what's going on? It's because someone hasn't had the conversation to help them discern how what they said could be inappropriately understood. And and maybe, and this is the worst part of, of leadership, possibly moving people away from the person and work of, of Jesus. Like, this yeah. is a heavy thing, the, Nick. You know what I'm saying? We're not just throwing... The eighth commandment is not a commandment to shut up and do what I say. Exactly. Don't challenge anything. Exactly. And I think that, Jack, (laughs) is how it's interpreted from time to time. Um, Anything to add toward that failure of nerve, Nick? Yeah. So, look, uh, in the military, there obviously is a chain of command. But the way that, uh, you know, uh, Jack, I think you were a Cold Warrior. I don't know how old you are, but I I think you were probably maybe towards the tail end. 2016 ish. Yeah, oh, okay. So maybe not a cold warrior. Not quite. Yeah. But uh, yeah. so the idea that how we were going to defeat the Soviet military, because if you look at the way our forces were arranged in, in Europe, uh, we, everything we had over there was going to be a speed bump for Russian armor. Right. So, yep. the, so what we were going to do was going to target their general general staff and their communications. And the reason for that is the Soviet soldiers wouldn't do anything without permission. They would just literally stand there and get killed or captured or whatever. Um, The way that we uh, function as a U.S. military is we delegate authority to the proper level and then we execute violent within that. Yeah, right. Exactly. So you have a non-commissioned officer. The amount of authority that a squad leader has when they need to make decisions independent of a chain of command is it's yeah. very high. I mean, they were right. making life and death decisions, and that 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 goes back to World War Two. The the right. German. Soldiers did not have the authority at like the squad level, at the platoon level that the American soldiers had. And that made a big tactical difference. Now, now imagine in a, in a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod context, I have at least one pastor and I have a board of directors or elders or whatever you want to call them all reviewing this decision-making process. And those congregations should be a laboratory uh, to figure out what it is that works and what doesn't instead of having uh, these committees. Uh, and by the way, my pastor is fond of saying that a uh, elephant is a committee uh, is a racehorse designed by a committee. Right. And so um, it, you, you, uh, we have all these committees who decide whether they're going to give permission for something rather than synthesizing uh, information that's coming in for at the grassroots level from, from various congregations around the Senate, deciding what best practices are, and then incorporating that at the Senate Inc. level and pushing that back down. That's that's well, how you run an organization. But yeah. but unfortunately, they're in survival mode. And so what they recognize are threats, not opportunities. They are completely closed to opportunities. All they are is in threat identification mode. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think we're confused about the polity of the Missouri Synod. To be quite yeah. honest, do we it want to be in a, an Episcopal, Episcopal, you know, uh, or congregational? Polity? Or congregational? That right? And and we're, and we're trying both. to we're trying to do both. <laughs> like, and it's very confusing. I'll be quite honest. Very very confusing at the local level to understand how exactly we're supposed to function. Um, and if we are congregational. You'd think a lot more of uh, the, and these are all people that I care for and pray for in positions of leadership in LCMS Inc. and in our institutions. You'd think they'd want to go grassroots a little bit more to kind of try to figure out what's working in our various contexts. And I would think that there would be more charity and understanding about the diverse contexts that all of our churches find ourselves. And I would think that they would want to know what does it look like to train up leaders to reach people in these diverse contexts while standing on the truths of scripture. Like that's something I would think they'd want to know. But right now, as I'm just taking a look, I don't think they really want to know that. That's that's unfortunate. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's it's a great point. I mean, I look, I mean, I you we may disagree just a little bit on worship styles, uh, but what I think what I think that we should do is how is high culture should be whatever that is. So if you're from Botswana and it's more percussion, then that's and that's what high culture is for you. Fine. 
if you're from the global south and it's you know syncopated rhythms or whatever it is uh and music fine i don't care but what i the, my only thing is let's just not have it be you know a uh, a uh, 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 transient stylistically because there has to be some permanence and re- uh, reverence and 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 worship music that's that's my yeah, only request I, and so um so to me some some guy in you know El Paso some pastor in El Paso has already figured out what that looks like and so but I don't know the answer to that as I mm-hmm. as I reach out towards uh, members of my community I have no idea what that looks like and so there is no mechanism to really gather that and decide you know, what works from an outreach effort, what works from a missional perspective, what, what does your worship look like for certain uh, communities of immigrants? Um, and, uh, and by the way, we are as non-immigrant as we are uh, uh, non anything other than white uh, demographically as well. And which is completely ironic when you go back to 1860 and find a church that is nothing but immigrants. So, um, we, we really need to get, I mean, if we're looking for higher birth rates, that's where they are. The only thing <laughs> that's fact, no, I mean, that's very fact. true. <laughs> yep. So the only thing that, that kind of is a uniting principle is relationship and trust that's formed over time for me to help a brother in El Paso understand in his unique context, what it looks like to hold to the liturgy. I think this is a helpful conversation for us to have today. I I believe that the way we structure the divine service, God serving us through word and sacrament is a helpful tool that crosses cultures because it centers us in our baptismal identity in Jesus, our need to confess sin and be absolved, to hear the word of God, you are forgiven for you, right? To to apply God's word to my life, the law that crushes, the gospel that makes us alive, the prayers of the church, Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed, Creed, uh, Nicene Creed, etc. Obviously, the the Lord's Supper to give me his very body and blood and, and the benediction to go with the blessing and presence of a God who loves me and cares for me and sends me out in mission to make him known. Like, I I think the general guts of what I just shared can cross culture, um, mm-hmm. should cross culture. And if if we're just saying there's a, well, because this culture and, and maybe they're connected to the Pentecostal church or something like that, like now we're just going to compromise the divine, all of the structure of the divine service just to satisfy. I think that's inappropriate. And at the same time, if they've got some some rhythm, some some beats that help shape their their worship of the triune God, it would be in, inappropriate for me to just totally discount that yeah. as as well. Um, my kids, I just got to share a little story with you guys. My kids and I and my wife, uh, my wife going way back in the day, loved and through a harder time in her life was pointed at Jesus by, now don't judge, uh, Kirk Franklin. And, uh, and the, his, his whole gospel movement. And there, there's this one called the lamb of God that uh, they sang last night. It was a Jesus party that went on for three and a half hours. That was there. That was, it was a radically different. I was the, the minority, uh, by probably, you know, 5% or so there in that, in that space. And yes, do I understand and had good conversation with my kids that a number of these kind of emotive leanings, uh, maybe in a charismatic kind of, uh, but they, they kind of, I heard them countering that like over and over again, despite your feelings, despite your struggles, despite your obstacles, Jesus is for you. He's with you. And again, they're not a sacramental church necessarily. Most of those who go there. So it may sound a little bit nuanced, but man, there was this callback to Jesus, but it felt and looked totally it looked way different, but Jesus yeah. was still there. He was still glorified. So can I have hospitality conversations with my kids uh, so that we don't become legalistic uh, too too quickly? Um, anything to say say to that? I'm hoping that what I said is, is a unity-forming statement rather yeah. than a divisive statement. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I, look, I mean, I, look, if, if I go to an Episcopal wedding, I, I'll go up there and be blessed by a priest. I mean, if they have communion, I'm not going to take communion, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a very big difference between standing up uh, as a Lutheran pastor and a collar in front of a, uh, a group of people and actually uh, praying with or, you know, participating in any sort of uh, 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 as long as they're praying to the right God, as long as it's heterodox and not, uh, uh, you know, and not, 
you know, I'm, I'm not going to go to a Mormon church or a, or a, uh, 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 what are the Aryans called? Um, the, uh, ah, I forget. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go to, to one of those uni- churches. Unitarian? Isn't that where it's, uh, uh, Unitarians, Jehovah, uh, non-Trinitarian, Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witness. Witness. Yeah, yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses are modern Aryans. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, I'm not going to go to one of those churches, but, uh, I, I have no issue, uh, participating in praise. In fact, we, um, uh, it, it's kind of, you know, I mean, I'm a liturgical guy. Um, you know, I used to find it, you know, if somebody said the apostles creed on a, on a, on a, uh, on a Sunday, we were having the Lord's supper. That was a, that was a scandal for me, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm traveling. So I went to the, you know, closest LCMS church and they had a worship and praise service on Wednesday night. And so I sat there and sang Amy Grant, and Michael W. Smith songs. I, you know, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter, uh, the, the form of worship. Uh, but I will tell you this, that they're all confessional Lutherans, every single one of them. And so, yeah. um, that's the important part, uh, from my perspective, but yeah, I, my, my, my entire point on worship music is just make it, whatever it is, just make it high culture. And, you know, if that looks like, you know, a percussion and a sitar, then that's what it looks like. It, it doesn't really matter yeah. to me. It's all about your local context. This is so, so fun. We'll have you back, Nick. It's a, it's a helpful conversation. What do you hope the LCMS looks like in 20 years? Yeah, I like, uh, I like this. I like this. I like this question. I, I ask a lot of people this question. Hope is the fuel for us moving toward Jesus and uniting to one another into the future. We've seen problems. Jesus is the solution. And so hope gives us actually this. It unlocks this dopamine hit of joy in, in the brain. Things don't always have to be as they are right yeah. now. So what do you hope the LCMS looks like? Yeah, I, I'll just say it bluntly. I hope we look less white. If we don't look less white, we're going to be half the size. If we're still 95, 96% white, uh, we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to lose. We're going to, we're going to shrink away to posterity, especially when you look at the age of our average congregant. It's, so let's not going to work. Yeah. Let's pause right there. (laughs) If that, if that is the case, then we should be promoting the cross-cultural ministry training program. Yes. We should be exploring, especially because a lot of our non-white, we're not going to get into uh, equality conversations necessarily, especially around economics. But this this does mean that the economics of formation for future leaders has to be considered. And this is one of the tests we're running right now. So there are opportunities uh, for us to move in that direction and to raise up missionary leaders, evangelists and pastors toward toward that end. And I, I would say I would say to your point, we must we must. Yeah. What else, Nick? Yeah, um, we need to re-energize. Uh, hopefully, in twenty years, we have re-energized our school systems to the point that we are uh, that Lutheran kids going to Lutheran schools is the rule rather than the exception. And today, it's the exception, um, and we need to change that. Our our schools are a powerhouse; they are a source of strength. Um, Amen. Almost, almost on par with our doctrine itself, and so we need to re-energize <clears throat> that school system and uh, invest in it until it's painful. In fact, we have these large, you know, neo-Gothic revival uh, castles that have 30 people who worship in them uh, once a week. And I would much rather hang on to that school that costs you all that money than that building that is doing nothing for you. Uh, Yes, we agree on that. If they sold empty churches and built schools, I'd be very happy with that. Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. Because we could worship anywhere. Yeah, we mm-hmm. can worship anywhere. You can worship uh, in the gym of a school. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. right. Yeah, yep. so good. So we become more diverse. Uh, education is very, very appropriate, especially with rapid secularization today. Raise up a child in the way that he or she should go. Get them on that yep. campus five, some five, six days a week, including church, right? So yep. good stuff, Nick. What else? Yep. Man, I th- I, those are two big lifts. Uh, I, I think that's going to take <laughs> pretty much. I, I, I think that's going to take all of our resources and all of our efforts. We have got to be more diverse, and we have got to reinvest in our school system. Um, and and there's no there's no question about it. And uh, uh, yeah, if we do that in 20 years, we'll actually we'll have three million, four million Lutherans instead of two, or instead Amen. of one if we don't, or fewer. Yep. Yeah. Amen. This is so much fun, man. I love I love this conversation. Uh, and hopefully, listener, you found it you found it useful. Um, walking the Jesus way, welcoming all, recognizing my my sin um, that I have hypocrisy in me. We've located the enemy. 
if more of us can say this, this would be helpful. We've located the enemy and it's me. Yeah. It's me getting in the way. It's my fear. It's my pride. And I need the humility and the love of Jesus uh, to saturate my heart and mind so that I can relate to my brother, learn from my brother or sister and grow more and more up into Jesus, who is the head. And a final thing toward this, if you were in a leadership role in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, this is a call for you to have courage to engage those who, oh man, I don't know if I... If I interact with them, I don't know what some people are saying. This podcast right now is starting uh, to have, I pray, just a ripple effect for us to listen twice as much as we got to speak and to have overwhelming humility and to center our conversation on the main thing, which is Jesus, the center of all of human human history, the lover of our souls. How people, how can people connect with you, Nick, if they desire to do so? Uh, yeah, so I don't uh, hide behind anonymity online. So you can, you you can hit that. me up, hit me up anywhere. Uh, I I often comment on these Facebook or on these uh, YouTube uh, uh, on the YouTube channel, or you can uh, email me at ngraph79 at gmail if you want. And graph seven nine G R A F F. This yep. has been so much fun, bro. You're you're a gift to the body of Christ. Uh, continue on that learning journey, and uh, thank you for using all of your gifts. And 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 last, this is being released probably way after Veterans Day. I and so many are grateful for the sacrifices that you made so that we can have the freedoms that we have today to have even conversations like this and to gather for word and sacrament week in and week out. It's a good day. Go and make it a great day. We'll be back next week with another episode of Lead Time. Thanks, Nick. And thanks, Jack. Thanks, Tim. God bless Jack. You've been listening to Lead Time, a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective. The ULC's mission is to collaborate with the local church to discover, develop, and deploy leaders through biblical Lutheran doctrine and innovative methods. To partner with us in this gospel message, subscribe to our channel, then go to theuniteleadership.org to create your free login for exclusive material and resources, and then to explore ways in which you can sponsor an episode. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode. The Unite Leadership Collective is excited to announce the launch of our new online learning platform. Whether you're considering entering into ministry or already leading, we have the resources that you need to become an empowered leader in your ministry. Our learning platform will release new courses every quarter with our first available course, Becoming an Engaged Leader, available now. But by joining our monthly membership, you'll unlock unlimited access to all of our courses and gain entry into our exclusive coaching community space where ministry leaders can connect with each other. This community also grants you access to bi-weekly coaching calls led by the ULC team, private Zoom calls, and additional team discounts. To celebrate the launch, we're offering introductory rates for all of our courses and the monthly subscription plan. Just enroll prior to January 1st using the code 75ULC2023 to get 75% off at checkout. Visit theuniteleadership.org to learn more about our online learning platform and start your journey to lead effectively in any church settings today.